Our passage this morning uh, is on a topic that many people think they know a lot about, freedom. Not simply because this is America and it is the land of the free, after all, uh, but because we live in a culture of postmodernism and we are the West. But I'm going to argue that because of that, many Christians who live in this kind of cultural environment uh, are missing or misunderstanding one of the core fundamental realities of the Christian faith. Furthermore, because of that misunderstanding, I think the experience of a lot of people's uh, experience of Christianity is more like a moral therapeutic reform than a sin-defeating, spirit-empowered new life in Christ that the New Testament talks so much about. Now, this is a big claim. I get that, but it's a big issue. It is a big issue, and what I'm trying to do is arrest your attention and so elicit a response from you that you might actually want to try and prove me wrong on this point and therefore go back to the text and reread it again. And so the way we're going to move forward this morning is we're going to ask Paul four primary questions. Number one, what does Paul mean by freedom? Number two, what happens when we reject this freedom? Number three, what obligations does this freedom bind to us? And number four, why do we have a hard time reconciling freedom and obligations? Now, the first two questions are easy enough. They're pretty straightforward. But I suspect that when we get to question number three, it gets a little shaky. After all, a freedom that binds obligations to us? That sounds sounds contradictory. In reality, it's one of those Christian paradoxes that um, you begin to realize how true it is the more you think about it. Now, if you are a Christian, then, then settling with the paradox is not a problem. You are used to paradoxes. As, after all, as Amy Carmichael says, when you become a Christian, you enter into what is called the upside-down kingdom, right? Where if you want to be first, you got to be last. You want to be the greatest, be the servant. If you want to find your life, you get to give it away, right? And if you're not a Christian you'll be okay too because we live in a world that's chock full of paradox, right? So, for example, if you're fine with jumbo shrimp, you're okay, right? Or the fact that slim chance means the exact same thing as fat chance or that we drive on parkways but park on driveways. So, paradox is all around us and you'll be okay. Paradox is part of what makes life beautiful. It kind of makes life delicious, so to speak. And a, a freedom that has obligations, a freedom that binds us is one of those paradoxes that really point to the beauty of life as God the Creator intended it to be. So the way we're going to move forward is to ask this passage those four questions, and we're going to do that number one. What does Paul mean by freedom? And I can't help, I'll be honest with you, I told this the first hour, whenever I read this particular verse, I always hear in my mind the voice of William Wallace from Braveheart, right? Uh, and that, that one dramatic scene when he cries out for freedom, or Martin Luther King when he's talking about being free, these are cries of political and social freedom that resonate throughout our culture. But that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here. Paul's not talking about a political freedom. Paul's not talking about a social freedom. He's not talking about individual freedom. He's not even talking about artistic freedom. Paul is talking about the most important freedom known to humanity. It is the freedom that allows humanity to flourish. 
What Paul is addressing here in Galatians 5 is the freedom to have access to God Himself, the freedom to be reconciled, the freedom to be in God's presence. Now, Gustavo Guterres, the um, Latin American scholar, priest, and theologian who was awarded the Legion of Honor by the French government for his tireless work on behalf of the poor and oppressed, writes a lot about freedom and liberation. And in his fight against oppression and his fight for freedom and liberation, he says there are three very important aspects of freedom we need to understand. There's what he calls the social aspiration of oppressed people. There's secondly, the human aspiration of developing a new man in a different society. And then thirdly, there is the spiritual aspiration of being free, set free from sin through Christ. What he writes on the screen behind me is really important. He says, so these different types of freedom, this is not a matter of three parallel or chronologically successive processes, however. So he's saying these three, social, human, and spiritual, they're not all equal here. Rather, they are levels of meaning of a single complex process which finds its deepest sense and its fullest realization in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The most important of all freedom is being freed to commune with God. As important as political freedom and social freedom is, Gustavo says, nothing compares to the freedom of being set free from your sin so that you can commune with God again. Now, verse 1 is, is so loaded, we won't be able to unpack all of it because really, Galatians has been unpacking all of it, so we're going to go through these really quickly. It is the, the goal of freedom, the means of freedom, the response of freedom, and the resolve that gospel freedom requires. We talked about the goal of that freedom. It's to commune with God. Secondly, the means, Paul says here, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Christ sets us free, not our morality not our intellect, not our ethics, not our politics. Christ Himself sets us free by His perfect life and perfect death. Christ sets us free. That's the means of this freedom, which is the goal to have us relate with God again. And the response, Paul says here, is very simple. We stand in that freedom. We don't take away from it. We don't add to it. We rather marvel at it. We are amazed at it. We are convinced of it. That's what stand means here. It, it, you might be familiar with Martin Luther's famous, here I stand and I can do no otherwise. It's the same idea. I am convinced of this reality. I'm standing in the conviction that there is no freedom more important than being the, having the freedom to commune with God, and that freedom is only given to us because of Jesus Christ. So we have the goal, we have the means, we have the response, and finally we have the resolve all in this verse. Notice what he says, do not go back again. Notice that? Don't go back again. You were once there thinking that God accepts you if you do this, thinking that God accepts you or loves you if you don't do that. That's not how it works. God accepts you because God loves His Son. Get that? God accepts you because God loves His Son, and if you are in His Son, He loves you because you are now one of His sons or daughters. We talked about that last week. We talked about John chapter 15, how to abide in Christ. To, be, to try to be accepted by God 
in any other way is just a form of slavery. That's what Paul is getting at here in verse 1. That's what he means by freedom. The freedom that is brought by the gospel to be acceptable to God because of what Jesus Christ has done and not because of the things we try and contribute. That is the general theme of freedom. That's the general theme of Galatians. That's the general theme of the Christian faith. Guterres says Christianity is freedom in the truest sense. Everything else is just another form of slavery with more comfortable chains. Now, for the Galatians, that slavery manifested itself in this ritual of circumcision, uh, that practice in particular, and obedience to the law, the Torah in general. Okay, that's how this slavery manifested for them. I know none of us in this congregation are struggling with circumcision or keeping the Torah. That's not how this works. Our only dietary concerns are not ritual cleanliness. It's only calories and whether it's got gluten or not. We're not concerned about our food making us acceptable for God. So we say, how is this relevant to us? Keep in mind, the beauty of our faith came in a context and circumcision and Torah obedience was their context. It's not our context, but the heart issue is identical, and we're going to see that real quick, okay? So don't confuse the presenting context as the application context. That's just what they struggled with. We struggle with things very differently, but the heart issue is the same. So what did Paul mean by freedom? We understand the freedom to have access and communion with God through Jesus Christ, the most important freedom that there is. But what happens if we reject that freedom? What is the result of rejecting that freedom? That's verses 2 through 12. Now, just real quick, it's, it's interesting that within these first five verses, Paul is making it very clear that on the one hand, the gospel is available to all people. He says that in verse 1, all of us who desire to have to trust in Christ have freedom, but then in verses 2 through 4, notice six times he switches from us to you, 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 and then in verses 5 and 6, he goes back to we. Well, what's Paul doing there? Paul is recognizing that there are two ways of being accepted by God that people tend to approach God with, either your performance, verses 2 through 4, or Christ's performance on your behalf, verses 5 through 6. And the pronouns bring that to light. If you're a Bible student, that's something to watch out for, the pronouns. Very interesting, and we see that here. What Paul is saying is that if you accept circumcision, now, what you need to realize is don't get caught up on circumcision. We're going to unpack this in a little bit, but that was just their presenting problem, okay? Paul's saying if you accept circumcision a performance somehow to earn God's favor, two things are going to be the result of that. And we see that in verse 2, and we see that in verse 4. The first thing that's going to result is that Christ is going to have no value to you. Christ will not matter anything to you, no matter how religious you might be. If you accept circumcision, Christ doesn't matter. And secondly, the, second, the very end of verse 4, you're going to fall from grace. Okay? Those are the two consequences if we accept uh, any other way to come to God other than His prescribed way through Jesus. Jesus will mean nothing, and you have fallen from grace. Let's look at the text. Verse 2, Paul says, he makes the assertion, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why? The answer is verse 3. 
Verse 3 answers why Christ will be of no value. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's now obligated to keep the whole law. Because if you accept one aspect of the law to make your standing before God, then you are obligated to keep the whole thing. The law is a zero-sum game, folks. There is no uh, moral smorgasbord here. I pick this, I like that, I'm going to ignore these. That's not how it works, right? This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect. Perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. It's a zero-sum game if you're going to choose to be right before God based on performance. So Christ is of no value. If that's the route you're going to take, then you don't need Jesus. He's of no value to you. Simply put, if you're going to add circumcision, you lose Christ. You seek to be justified by Christ, or you're going to reject Christ. You can't have it both ways. He's saying it is impossible to receive the work of Christ, acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then try to hobble along to that some kind of, in their context, circumcision, thereby saying you don't need Christ and you can make yourself acceptable to God without Him. So Paul's saying you can't have it both ways. Christ will be of no advantage to you. But what about his claim, you've fallen from grace? Look at verse 4. It's the very end of verse 4. You have fallen away from grace. Well, well why? Well, the very beginning of verse 4, because you've been severed from Christ. Well, well how? Look at the middle of verse 4. You who will be justified by the law. You've been severed from Christ. How did that happen? Well, because you have, excuse me, you've fallen away from grace. How did that happen? You've severed Christ. Well, how did that happen? Because you're trying to be acceptable to God on something else other than Christ. So Paul makes it very clear to these these Galatians, these Christians, there's only one way to get to God, right? That that counts, that, that we can actually lean in towards, and that's through the work of Christ. See, the issue at hand is that circumcision stands for a human achievement to make yourself acceptable to God, but Christ stands of a divine achievement for what God has done to make us acceptable to Him, right? So, so the issue of circumcision, we can swap it out with a ton of things. It's a matter of How are you trying to be acceptable before God? Now, let me try and take a very broad theological topic and try to make this really um, practical for you or or, or a way we can understand it, and we see it in our lives every day. Keep your finger in Galatians. Go with me to to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And what we're going to see is just one of the principal effects of the fall, one of the principal effects of sin is shame. And what I want to do is I want to tie in what can admittedly seem like abstract, bizarre, large theological concepts, and I want to tie it into God's redemptive plan and how it shows in our lives in some subtle ways we don't even see it. And I want to do that so we can see how theology matters in the way we live, right? So Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, we pick it up in the narrative where uh, man, Adam and Eve, have rebelled against God, they've eaten of the fruit. Pick it up in verse 7. Then the, eyes, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And here it is, verse 11, and God said, who told you you were naked? Friends, we have got to see happening here much more than just interaction. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, now they know bad and evil, and that's how sin got in the world. We need to see the psychological impact, the reality, the earth-shaking reality of what took place. They were fine, created, perfect, naked. They were good. And then all of a sudden, notice what happened when they sinned. They looked at each other and went, something is not right here. We need to cover ourselves. And they took fig leaves and covered themselves. And then they hid themselves. You see, for the first time, Adam and Eve knew God is this amazing, resplendent creator, holy among all things. Now they knew, and we are desperately wicked and depraved, and there's something wrong, and we need to cover somehow. God says, who told you you were naked? What sin does... It makes us realize that something's not right, and it brings a deep, abiding sense of shame, and we have to cover. Now, whether it is a, a, you cover yourself with religious rituals like circumcision or a whole host of actions, behaviors, or attitudes, the point is, sin makes us realize, I do not bring what is necessary to the table. I am incomplete. I am not enough, and so I need to cover so that I can present something to you that's acceptable. When you, when you really think about this, they covered themselves with fig leaves and, and somehow thought, that's okay now. We can't be seen. Our, our nakedness, and I'm not talking the physical nakedness, uh, our exposed nature of our rebellion is covered. We got our fig leaves on. God says, who told you? You didn't know this. Now you know the difference between me and you in a way that is pushing you away. So let's, let's go back to Galatians now. So what I want to plant in your mind is that sin brings about a shame, a realization that we are not enough and we need to cover this up. We are not acceptable as is and we need to somehow present ourselves in a way that is acceptable. Now let's tie this theological doctrine in, in, in ways that, that's so huge throughout life but so subtle that sometimes we don't even see it. So I'm going to give a couple illustrations that, that admittedly, can have other explanations, but I talk with enough people, and I know that this is at least one of them. So you're a part of a church, and you love the people in that church, you love to get to know them, and you love having the relationships, but you're never going to invite any one of those people from your church to your home. It's not because you don't like them, it's because you've got young kids, and your house is a devastation. There's dirty laundry, dishes in the sink, you never can clean up, and you'd be embarrassed. You would die if they saw the way your house looked. So, it's actually more important to be perceived as a good housekeeper than to love people with your house and inviting them in and just saying, it's messy, but I love you, come on in. And so, to keep the perception that you keep a good house is more valuable than really loving people and pulling them into your life, okay? How about this one? You've been a Christian for a couple of years, 
two, three years, but yet you say you don't know enough to teach a Bible study or disciple someone else. Now, that might have some legitimacy to it, but there's also some other dynamics at play. It could be true that it's more important for you to look competent, and since you haven't taken your faith seriously enough and you don't want that to be exposed, you just kind of say, I I don't really know that much. It sounds much more pious than to say, no, I really need to look competent, and that would expose the fact that I'm not. So rather than being exposed and recognizing, maybe I can grow and, and, and really take this seriously and I can supply what is lacking in someone's faith, you go on looking like a good Christian, but maybe not really serving like one, right? My friends, what habit, hobby, hang-up, physical flaw, uh, mental tick, real or perceived shortcoming or, or deficiency that you have, would you be crushed if somehow made it to YouTube for all the world to see? What, what, because it would, it would destroy the well-crafted image that you've created that you always carefully present to the world around you, and somehow if somebody got a video of that, you would just be crushed, right? Now, what could also be happening there is that what's being revealed is an area of your life where you've got a fig leaf on that you have carefully covered up so that you are accepted by others as something that more than you actually are. So, I don't know if you're a workout buff, so the workout woman or the muscle man always eats right, works out right, would be crushed if somehow it made it to YouTube that, that they at night love to pig out on those $1 wax donuts, you know, those little ones, and they just love to scarf those down. And they would be destroyed if somehow their friends at the gym saw them eating that. Or a husband and wife that we think has a perfect marriage would be destroyed if their church family knew that they've been sleeping in separate beds for the last six months because they just cannot get along. And it's more important to keep the facade that everything's good than to let it down and say, we're just struggling and I can't, we can't seem to love each other. It's more important to be accepted of those reasons than to let down the fig leaf and say, I am exposed. See, the freedom of the gospel says, come to grips with how defective you really are so you can come to grips with how radical God loves you and how His love for you really is. It is in Christ and Christ alone that you are really free and really accepted, not in being a good housekeeper, not in being a competent Christian ideal spouse or physically fit or whatever else. You are truly accepted in Jesus and Jesus alone, all your flaws included, because in fact, because of your flaws, you couldn't make yourself acceptable. That's why he did it. And striving to be accepted for any other reason is just a form of slavery. It makes you anxious because you never compete. You, never, you can never live up to it. It makes you bitter because other people seem to be doing it, even though they're living behind a facade too. It makes us not real with the most powerful existential reality of the gospel that it's good for people who just don't got it together. Verse 5 and 6, back in Galatians, Paul says, For through the Spirit, though, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's not, it's not the righteousness that one day I will get it together, one day I will be a perfect housekeeper or a perfect ideal dad or any of those things. That's not the hope that I'm waiting for. 
It's the one that comes from Christ. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither performance or non-performance counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then we have this amazing, this, this is what I call as a very pastoral aside, verses 7 through 12, where Paul really shows his heart, both in his love, and he gets angry. Did you catch that line where he says, those people are telling you to circumcise yourselves. I wish they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. Paul was just passionate, right? Um, but verse 10 gives me confidence that we can safely pass over that because, as Paul said, he's confident they're, they're going to understand. So I want to keep to the theme that's going through this gospel freedom that's also tied into the very last part of verse 6. What matters, it's not circumcision, non-circumcision, it's not performance or non-performance. Then he says something unusual, but what matters is faith working through love. That seems odd. That leads us to our third question. What obligation does freedom bring us? Verse 13, let's skip down. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is clear here that the freedom he has in mind, the freedom that the gospel brings, is not a form of personal anarchy. It's not free of restraint. It's not free of restriction or obligation. He says, don't use your freedom for the flesh. Now, if you're not familiar with Christian way, the ways we use our language, flesh simply means what in the New Testament? It's, it's the, the personal, selfish desires, a system that's in opposition to the things of God. So he's saying, don't use the freedom you have to just indulge your own desires and do what you want. That's not why you were given freedom. It's interesting because he also says right after that, use your freedom to, be a, to serve others. It's the Greek word doulos, which means slave. So the irony is Paul saying, use your freedom to be a slave. Use the freedom that Christ got you to be a slave for others. And then, shock, even more shocking, Paul throws in this thing of, of the law. And all up to this point, law's, Paul's been saying the law doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden he says, fulfill the law. What is going on here? Is Paul contradicting himself? Is he playing fast and loose with what Scripture teaches? How do we reconcile this and the fact that the entire chapter 5 and 6, a bunch of commands, do's and don'ts, this is how you should live, this is how you shouldn't live. What is happening here? As usual, the Bible is upending our notions of what real freedom is and our notions of what actual slavery is. Let me quote for you a gentleman named Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychologist who was in the Nazi death camps, and he wrote a book about his experience in the death camps called A Man's Search for Meaning, and he writes this, freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. I like that. And that brings us to our fourth point. Why do we have a hard time reconciling freedom and obligation? Clearly, freedom obligates us to things, but that sounds odd. So why do we have a hard time reconciling the two? And here I get to my very opening point this morning. The reason that sounds odd is because the vast majority of our culture, and that would include my brothers and sisters, unless God's Word, like Romans 12 is saying, is constantly renewing your mind, 
unless you are deliberately challenging the worldview of our culture and measuring it against Scripture and saying, words just compete, unless you are being very vigilant to do that, you are absorbing from the world the way the world thinks. And the vast majority of our culture, and even within the church, believe and associate and say that freedom is autonomy, the ability to do whatever I want to. That is what our culture teaches about freedom, that freedom is autonomy, and you're only free when you have the ability to do whatever you want to do. Thus, any kind of obligation, demand, or responsibility, or accountability is an affront and attack to your personal freedom, because you're going to be free, then that means you can do whatever you want, because that's freedom. We know better. The Bible never defines freedom as the ability to do whatever you want. The Bible defines freedom radically different. It's a definition that Viktor Frankl was beginning to understand, and it's an understanding of freedom that all dog trainers know very well. I'll get to that in a little bit. Our culture, our world says freedom means you're autonomous, you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want to, God says, reality teaches that true freedom is obedience, that you have the ability to do what is right. That is 180 degrees different, isn't it? The world says freedom means you are free to do whatever you want. The Bible says, and reality teaches us, true freedom is the ability to do what you ought to. True freedom is obedience. Ravi Zacharias, a theologian and scholar and philosopher, says this, in an attempt to be reasonable, man has become irrational. In an attempt to deify himself, he has defaced himself. In an attempt to be free, he has made himself a slave, and like Alexander the Great, he has conquered the world around him, but has not yet conquered himself. Obedience, not autonomy, is the road to freedom. Let me say that again. Obedience to your Creator, not autonomy to your own selfish, slaving desires is the road to freedom. If you've ever worked with people, addicts, trying to overcome their addiction, you know very well that freedom does not mean you do what you want, that that freedom often enchains you and enslaves you in ways you could not have ever imagined, all in the name of doing what you want. The Bible constantly says we are free when we obey. So what's this have to do with a dog trainer? Many of you know the road heavers have a dog named Napoleon. He's the most adorable, uh, lovable dog you could possibly have. And for those of you who have been over to our home, you know this. <laughs> Look at him. But he can also be the most vicious, uh, wild beast you've ever seen. Oh, you list that picture there. Um, there he is. That's the same dog. It is the same exact dog. The problem is is that Napoleon's training was cut short. And because we couldn't train him, whenever we take him on a walk, he tries to attack every car that drives past, no matter how small, no matter how big. He wants to attack the mailman. He wants to attack the gardener. He likes to, he wants to, he used to want to attack people in my community group. He wants to attack anyone walking past the house. Now, you might say, now, Lori told me I was too hard on Napoleon, so maybe we should put that picture down. He, let, let, we should go back to the picture with him in his little vest. Anyway, you might simply say, 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. You, you might, that's how parents are with our kids, aren't we? Like those pictures. Now, you, know, you might say, well, he, he's a dog. What did you expect? That's my point. That, that, that's exactly, that is exactly my point. He is a slave to his own nature. He's a dog, and he just wants to do whatever dog wants to do. And unless my family's really careful, he will either get run over by a car or he will be put down for biting somebody he shouldn't have. Now, he might be free, but he's a slave and he just doesn't know it. Had the training proceeded, had we were able to teach him to be obedient, he would experience a whole other level of freedom that is actually free for him. But yet, because of Napoleon's dog nature, he pretty much stays in our house. We, never, we don't take him to the mall like it's popular these days. We don't take him to the park because he's a slave to his own nature and was never trained to be obedient to what would really set him free. Human autonomy is just slavery to ourselves. Godly obedience is the freedom to actually be what we were created to be. I mean, I put this last quote by Eugene Peterson in his book, Where Your Treasure Is. He's just genius. These, those people who pray know what most around them either don't know or choose to ignore. Centering life in the insatiable demands of the ego is the sure path to doom. They know that life confined to the self is a prison, a joy-killing, neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. Wow! But he's absolutely right. And the gospel brings a freedom that says, I will free you. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are really free indeed. That's the freedom of the gospel that is so counterintuitive to the world, that is claiming their freedom for their rights, their freedom to be and do whatever they want, only to see themselves enslaved and relationally, relationships falling apart, psychologically falling apart. Everything's falling apart because we desire to be free and autonomous. And the Bible says, no, you were created to be an image bearer. And you find your true freedom and your true identity when you fulfill that covenant. That is the freedom that the gospel brings us first and foremost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you for the freedom that truly sets us free. Thank you that many of us in this room have experienced that. And though, Father, we sometimes have a hard time with submitting the various aspects of our lives to your lordship, we know that is the path to freedom. It's not our autonomy, but our obedience. And Lord, as we celebrate and close our service, remembering this radical truth in the Lord's Supper, Father, we pray, we remember that it's not our lives that made us right. It is the perfect life of Christ represented by the bread that makes us right. Lord, and it certainly is cannot be our death that will answer the problem of sin, only the death of Christ represented by the cup. So, Father, as we partake, may we do so with a clean conscience before you, not holding on to circumcision or my reputation or my achievements or anything else, but wholly and solely holding on to the work of Jesus Christ that we partake this morning.
may be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.